Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Diseases Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Reynolds. This episode features expert insights from a webinar titled COVID-19 Update, Independent Conference Coverage of ECMID 2023, featuring Dr. Patrick Mallon, Professor of Microbial Diseases at the University College Dublin in Dublin, Ireland. For the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Mellon has to say about new data on COVID-19 from ECMID 2023. Hello everyone and welcome to this presentation on uh, feedback from ECMID, which is one of the largest, if not the largest European infectious diseases uh, conference that was held recently in in Copenhagen in in Denmark. One of the knowledge gaps that we've had with Remdesivir is its safety and its efficacy in, in people with chronic kidney disease, and specifically in this study called Red Pine, the study focused on the use of remdesivir in those with an EGFR less than 30 mils per minute. Um, so this was a double-blind, randomized, multi-center, placebo-controlled phase three trial. Well-conducted study, you can see that there was a randomization of about two to one for remdesivir IV versus a saline placebo. Approximately 163 people received remdesivir and 80 that received placebo. To be uh, enrolled in this study, you needed to be over the age of 12. You could have either chronic or acute kidney disease with an EGFR of less than 30. And you needed to be diagnosed with severe COVID-19 pneumonia. Now, the severity was established by the definition of an oxygen saturation less than 94% in room air or requiring supplemental oxygen. And it should be noted that um, those people who required invasive or non-invasive mechanical ventilation, ECMO, or renal replacement therapy for acute kidney injury were excluded from the trial. Primary endpoint was day 29, all-cause mortality or progress to invasive mechanical ventilation. What the study showed in terms of its primary endpoint, which was the all-cause mortality progression and non-invasive ventilation, you can see from the graph here that there was no significant difference between remdesivir versus placebo. Arguably under power to detect differences in efficacy, if the study had been performed back in March 2020, it probably would have been part given that the, the, the mortality that we're experiencing there, but we're looking at a different variant of virus now. We're looking at populations that are mostly vaccinated, so it's much harder to demonstrate mortality endpoints. Even when the study looked at subgroups, uh, which I I think are important to look at, for example, the difference between those with acute kidney injury and those with chronic kidney disease, or between those with chronic kidney disease and those with end-stage renal disease, you can see that the hazard ratios for all of these the confidence intervals all passed one, so we're not seeing any uh, significant between-group difference between use of remdesivir versus use of placebo in these subgroups of patients with renal failure. What the study was able to show, which I think is quite useful for clinical practice, however, is the uh, reflection of the safety of the use of this drug in people with an EGFR of less than 30. And what you can see here is the list of adverse events. So this is any treatment emergent adverse event, TEAE, including those that are greater than grade three. Um, Those that were 
thought to be related to the study drug, serious treatment emerging adverse events, and then those that resulted in discontinuation of study drug. And you can see that when you look at these treatment emerging adverse events, you really don't see any significant uh, difference in the proportion of subjects in either group that experienced these, whether it's a grade three, TEAE, which was experienced in 63% of the remdesivir group versus 61% of the placebo group, or serious treatment emerging adverse event, which is uh, experienced by 50% in each of the groups. You do see slightly more treatment emerging adverse events in, uh, leading to discontinuation of the drug in those on remdesivir versus those on placebo. Similarly, when you look at treatment emerging deaths, you don't see any significant difference uh, between groups, which demonstrates a, a safety profile which would certainly support the use of remdesivir in this patient population should there be a clinical indication for its use. Another interesting study that was conducted and presented at the conference around use of remdesivir looked at data on use of remdesivir and readmission for COVID-19 in a group of immunocompromised patients. Again, another group of patients in which we still see severe COVID occurring in, uh, a group of patients that we still have significant data gaps in. There have been some studies that have looked at use of remdesivir in immunocompromised patients, but they mean relatively few. Uh, and a lot of the studies that have been presented to date really lack the sample sizes that are required to provide uh, definitive outcome measures beyond the, beyond the immediate outcomes. So to try and get across that, one way of doing this is looking at more real-world evidence. And a way of looking at real-world evidence is to look within retrospective observational studies. So in this case, this study looked at a U.S. health insurance database, which has the ability, because it's uh, collecting fairly harmonized data across a large number of individuals, to uh, give you some snapshots or some insights into what's happening with use of drugs. Uh, the limitations to these sorts of studies is the fact that you're quite you're limited by the, the detail that's contained within the healthcare registry. So it can give you some broad insights, but is often lacking in detail. And this was a retrospective cohort study. Uh, what this study included were two groups. Uh, they had a, a group that received remdesivir and then a group that didn't receive remdesivir. And the group that received remdesivir were uh, classified as that group if they'd received greater than one dose at any time during their hospitalization. Now, the, the two groups were matched for age, for sex, for their date of COVID-19 diagnosis, which is important in, in terms of the, the difference over time in terms of, of infecting variants, but also in terms of modifications, treatment of COVID and vaccinations. The days in the hospital before the match date, whether they required oxygen support, their ICU status, and admission and comorbidities. So one of the advantages here is that you have, you're able to already correct for a number of the potential major confounders that, that could be looked for within this group. And then the endpoints here were all cause hospital readmission through days 30 and 60 after the initial COVID-19 diagnosis. Now, what this study showed overall within this table was that uh, the remdesivir group experienced fewer admissions at days 30 and day 60s uh, overall. Now, this was seen in the overall population, but they were also able to split this between two periods, a period of time 
when the Delta variant of, of SARS-CoV-2 was predominant, and then a more recent period where the Omicron variant was predominant. And you can see here, if you just walk through this, uh, you've got the 30-day events. Uh, and when you look at the first three columns, this, these are, this is for the overall study. Those that received remdesivir, there were 1572 events. Those that received no remdesivir, there was 1722 events. And you could see that the hazard ratio for protection was 0.84. And quite tight confidence intervals, which would suggest that that difference is statistically significant. And you can see that that's also been observed at the 60-day admission rate. And this was seen both within the Delta variant. You can see the hazard ratio there of 0.89 and 0.87, together with the Omicron variant, 0.86 and 0.84. So these data would suggest that there is an, at least an association between having received remdesivir and these subsequent readmission rates. Unfortunately, what the data don't tell us is what these readmission rates were in relation to, in, in what way the use of remdesivir uh, contributed to, to the readmission rates. And as with any uh, retrospective analysis, these data are always subject to bias, especially recall bias. So these are data that I think are, are useful, but they're useful in terms of identifying a signal that should really be followed up in, in adequately designed and conducted prospective studies. Lastly, in terms of, of vulnerable populations, uh, another uh, question that's been asked is when we look at normaltrelvir and ritonavir, one of the issues around normaltrelvir and ritonavir treatment is the significant, uh, the significant risk of drug-drug interactions, which especially in people who are immunosuppressed can make use of this drug quite tricky. And a question has been asked, well, if we can't use this drug, are there alternatives? Can we reuse some of the old drugs uh, like molnupiravir? And in this study, these are patients with hematological malignancy who would be at high risk for severe COVID-19, um, in which you have normaltrelvir and ritonavir, which is approved by use by the EMA, while molnupiravir is not. Um, but there is a question as to whether or not the molnupiravir could be useful in, these, in, in, in this population because of its lack of, of drug-drug interactions. Again, a retrospective study, but this was a a retrospective case control study. Adult patients with lab-confirmed lab COVID-19 active hematological malignancy within the past five years, and this was taken from the European registry. So the cases and controls were masked for sex, age, and the status of, of hematological malignancy at the onset of COVID-19. And similar to the previous uh, studies, what we see here is no significant difference in overall survival probability um, or at any time point up to day 90. So here you have the four graphs here. You're looking at day 30 survival probability, day 60 survival probability, day 90 survival probability, and the overall survival probability. Now, the thing to notice about the numbers is that once you go uh, once you start to move out towards the day 90, you can see that the number of those that are actually in, involved reduces down. And particularly with the overall survival probability, when you look at it today's 200 and, and 300, you see that the overall number of people that are contributing to those time points 
is quite low. So the richest data here really relates to the day 30 and day 60 survival probability, which suggests that both of these medications are, are very similar in terms of their of the, the the benefit that they may offer to uh, to people with immunological malignancy or for, for severe COVID-19. So what can we take home from these studies? Well, firstly, use of remdesivir in patients with AKI, a chronic kidney disease, or those on end-stage renal disease wasn't associated with any concerning safety signals. Um, and the uh, what that would suggest that for physicians who do want to treat people for COVID-19 who have an EGFR of less than 30, that there shouldn't be any dose adjustment needed. The very intriguing data from a, a large healthcare registry of immunocompromised populations that suggests that there may be an association between use of remdesivir and a decreased risk for readmission at two time points, but also in two different time periods. And that the persistence of that signal um, suggests that there may be something real within that, and it's probably less likely to be due simply to confounding. And then lastly, the lack of observed mortality difference in people with hematological malignancies based on whether they were treated with normaltrelivir and ritonavir or alternative agents. And it does suggest that there may be uh, there may be options for alternative agents in those who are unable to take normaltrelivir and ritonavir because of drug-drug interactions. Okay. Moving on then, management of patients with severe COVID-19. What data came from ECMID in this regard? Well, probably the most important was the, uh, the updated data from the recovery study, which explored the use of higher dose versus standard dose corticosteroids in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the recovery study. This is an ongoing international uh, open-label randomized platform trial. And by, by platform trial, what we mean is that people are randomized to various different types of treatment uh, where the comparisons are what would be called usual care. This has been a, a very important type of trial designed in COVID-19 uh, because it's enabled us to explore simultaneously a large number of interventions. And the recovery trial has been instrumental in, in shaping some of the fundamental approaches to the management of COVID-19, including the use of dexamethasone and the benefit, the survival benefit that was associated with that. So what this analysis attempts to do is to say, okay, well, our, our standard approach to the use of dexamethasone, which is to use six milligrams once a day for 10 days or until someone gets better, is that enough? Or should we actually be trying to maximally dampen down the inflammatory component that's driving severe COVID-19? And to explore that, what recovery wished to do was to compare the standard dose corticosteroids, six milligrams daily, to a higher dose uh, of corticosteroids, which is 20 milligrams once a day of dexamethasone for five days, dropping down to 10 milligrams once a day for a further five days. Study population were adults who were hospitalized with COVID-19 who were hypoxic, uh, receiving no oxygen or low-flow supplemental oxygen. So Although maybe classified as severe disease, these are still a group of patients that you would expect if they're going to get worse, that they would progress to the need for things like mechanical ventilation or uh, um, non-invasive ventilation, which were part of the outcomes. 
So primary endpoint, a hard mortality endpoint, so day 28 mortality amongst all randomized participants, with the secondary outcome being the time to discharge from hospital, composite endpoint of mechanical ventilation or death, and other outcomes included need for duration of mechanical ventilation at all, need for renal replacement therapy, or the number of patients with thrombotic events, which is very common in severe COVID-19. So what did the study show? Well, what you have is a graph here that looks at the primary outcome, 28-day mortality. And in the blue bar, you have the higher dose steroids. In the red bar, you've got the standard dose corticosteroids. And you can see immediately that there's a very significant difference between the two. The two graphs clearly separate. What we observe in the blue bar is a much higher mortality with the higher dose steroids. And when you look at the risk ratio at the bottom of the graph, it's 1.59, so approximately 60% higher mortality. But the confidence intervals don't cross one, which means that it's statistically significant. So this was our primary outcome. When you look at the secondary outcomes with regards to invasive ventilation or death within 28 days, the higher dose had 131 events, standard dose had 80 events, risk ratio of 1.52, so 52% higher in terms of invasive ventilation or death. In terms of median duration of hospitalization, no difference. And in terms of those that were discharged alive from hospital at 28 days, no difference, really reflecting just how particularly unwell this group of, this group of patients are. So why did this happen? Well, the key insights into why we ended up with worse outcomes from higher doses of, of corticosteroids really lies when, when you look at the, uh, the adverse events rates, so the safety uh, events, and in particular, infection-related safety events. And it's clear from this graph, when you look at the non-SARS-CoV-2 infection rates, particularly pneumonia, and a lot of these people would have been at higher risk of pneumonia because of the need of, of, of invasive or mechanical ventilation. Uh, you can see that the, the number of events, much higher, 64 versus 37. Other infections, such as urinary tract infections, also slightly higher. Bloodstream sepsis infections, seven versus three. Um, and again, the, the pattern here would suggest that uh, at least the signal is that with higher doses of corticosteroids that you're driving up infections. Secondary to that, not unexpectedly, we also see hyperglycemia requiring new insulin use. Um, a slight signal around cardiac arrhythmias, um, but really most of what we're seeing here is being driven by infections in those that are on higher corticosteroids. There were some other data that included uh, some uh, uh, information on other use of other immunotherapies. There was a, a, a nice study from Hungary. Now, this was a single center study uh, that looked at patients who were treated with either toxilizumab or baricitinib for severe COVID-19. This was an open-label open label single center study. Patients were, uh, it's, it's a non-randomized trial. Patients were uh, presented with severe COVID-19, had to have a related cytokine, cytokine storm, and they were either treated with toxilizumab or baricitinib. Primary endpoint, all-cause mortality at day 28. Secondary endpoints included the requirement for invasive ventilation or major infectious complications, which has always been one of the concerns with the use of these immunomodulatory drugs. 
So what did this study show? Well, baseline characteristics were fine between the two groups with one, I guess, one major uh, confounder, and that was the timing of the drugs. So those that received toxilizumab tended to be treated earlier in the COVID-19 pandemic. So this would have been before the use of, of dexamethasone came in. Probably also when there were more uh, less vaccinations, for example, and and also uh, potentially when there when there were uh, when when there were variants of COVID nineteen that were associated with a higher mortality, and they're pretty big confounders. So um, even in the set now those confounders, you can see that the uh, survival probability here. Uh, very wide confidence intervals within the survival probability and no significant difference uh, between outcomes, either in those treated with toxilizumab or those treated with barsitinib. So unfortunately, this data really doesn't offer a, a, a huge amount of, of uh, beneficial information to tell these two drugs apart, mainly because of the, the study design and that confounding through time. What they did show was a significant difference for the requirement for invasive mechanical ventilation um, with uh, 52 or 51% of toxilizumab uh, receiving participants ending up with um, requiring invasive mechanical ventilation versus 27% in the barcitinib. But it's difficult to, uh, it's difficult really to put these results in context given the study design limitations. So take home points from these slides. Avoid higher dose steroids. Uh, recovery is a really well-designed study, very clear data, uh, very clear differentiation in, in mortality, and it's something that we should avoid. What we do see though, is when you're treating with either toxilizumab or barcidinib, I'm afraid the jury's still out. The, the study that I showed you really doesn't show any significant difference between the two. And, what we really need are, are properly conducted comparative randomized data. Okay, so moving on, the last section, we're really, uh, uh, there's a, a little bit of data in terms of what's what's up and coming with regards to new treatments. Um, there are two new drugs that were presented at the conference. We've got Encetrelvir, uh, which is a, a drug that's uh, really coming uh, through from Japan, produced by Shinogi. It's a protease inhibitor. Um, it's currently in phase two, phase three trials, and there was data presented at ECMID from the, the Scorpio study. And then there's Bimnosfibir. Um, Bimnosfibir is a guanosine nucleoside analog. Uh, and there was a, a phase three data from a phase three trial presented from a, a study called the, the morning study. And then we also had some uh, interesting data presented from uh, a couple of vaccines. We've got MB2155, which is the adenovirus vaccine. That's from uh, Guangzhou in, in, in China. It's an intranasal vaccine. And then we had some comparative data, the AstraZeneca beta variant vaccine, 2816. We had a, a Novavax combined influenza COVID vaccine. Um, and then we had a, a, another one I don't think we're going to cover, though, the uh, R910 self-amplifying RNA vaccine. So I'll show you a couple of slides from these uh, from each of these studies. So just uh, starting off with the, the AstraZeneca 
the AstraZeneca vaccine. So the, the 2816 and the, the 1222, which was the sort of primary AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, now what this what this study aimed to do was to see if though if if this uh, two dose primary series of, of COVID vaccinations would actually result in uh, good immunodeficiency, uh, good um, immunogenicity uh, when when you're looking at it. and to see if there was any difference when you compare a, a vaccine that's been specifically designed against the beta variant versus the the AZT one treble two. So this was a double-blind phase two, three trial um, conducted in Brazil, South Africa, Poland, and the UK. But when you look at the, the proportions, the vast majority of subjects actually came from Brazil and South Africa, mostly mostly young and predominantly men. Uh, what the vac what the, the study showed really was that both of these vaccines uh, re resulted in very good immunogenicity. Uh, the neutralizing antibody GMT ratios were 1.19, so they were very they were very close, and very little difference in terms of the the zero response rate. So this is the, the sort of vaccine efficacy when you look at the nucleocapsid zero response rate um, at day 28 and at day 180. You can see that they're very similar between the two vaccines. So these vaccines tend to tend to behave in a similar fashion, and certainly if we were to see uh, another Beta type variant uh, emerging again, this would certainly suggest to be a, a good vaccine candidate for that purpose. Um, the N, uh, so the QNIV CoV-2373, this is a very interesting uh, uh, approach where they've actually combined COVID and influenza vaccines into a single vaccine. So this was a dose fighting study, uh, phase one, two dose fighting study of a two dose um, Combined vaccine uh, administered 57 or 56 days apart in over 600 people. Median age 59, 40% of people female, and 100% of people had already received a COVID primary vaccine series. So really, the, the focus of this phase, uh, phase one two study, was really focused on safety. So looking at reactogenicity, looking at any adverse events, uh, and really what they found was other than what you would expect to see with localized pain and, and some, some malaise. There really were no significant serious adverse events with this combined vaccination. And then from an efficacy perspective, really the focus was looking at immunogenicity. And uh, it looked as if the, this vaccine actually, this combined vaccine actually produced very good immunodeficiency against both SARS-CoV-2 and influenza. And this is certainly a, a novel approach that may be useful uh, into the future, if indeed, as it's expected, that uh, SARS-CoV-2 becomes a seasonal virus, although I'm not quite sure that we're we're at that stage yet. Then we have the uh, Novavax study. So there's a Novavax study in people with HIV. There's always been a question mark over how well vaccines work in people with HIV and whether there's any difference in immunogenicity of vaccines if someone is living with HIV who's either well controlled with a, a good CD4 count and uh, an undetectable viral load or, or less well controlled. And in this uh, in this particular study, the, the looked at well-controlled versus less well-controlled based on uh, contributions from both CD4 and viral load. And what they found was that when you look after one dose, you do see a difference. So those with better controlled HIV had a better 
uh, immunogenicity when 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 uh, measured by IgG levels. But that difference was really negated with the second dose of the booster. So as we're seeing quite often with a lot of the COVID-19 vaccine studies, the immunogenicity is really powerful. And once you get that second dose, or in some cases the third dose, you start to see uh, you start to see really a, a disappearance of, of vaccine efficacy in, in people with some specific immunodeficiencies, but not all. So the take-home points on the novel antivirals and vaccines, well, the antivirals that are in development, they do target new mechanisms of action. They may address unmet needs for ambulatory patients with mild disease, including symptom worsening and viral rebound. I didn't get the chance to go through the, the, the data on, on encetelavir, um, but when, when you look at the data that's there, uh, the, the data would suggest that it's... Um, the, the, you do see some viral rebounds in in in, in when it's when it's used. The, the data from the phase three study showed that it actually does uh, result in abrogation of symptoms faster, so it, it it enables people to recover from COVID quicker. There's always this concept of whether you're you're going to end up with rebounds. Study did show some rebounds. The overall number was very small, and quite often these rebounds, when they went looking for them, they weren't really associated with significant rebound in symptoms, even though the virus was detectable. And in addition, when they went to culture the virus, they could very rarely uh, get culturable virus um, taken back from from uh, from these individuals. So. The data, um, the, the data looks good for these drugs in terms of viral reborn. Um, Bemnifosbuvir, the, the guanosine nucleoside analog, the phase three study in Bemnifosbuvir, uh, the, the, the morning sky study didn't show a huge benefit in, in, uh, when, when it was being used in, in early COVID-19, uh, which was disappointing to some extent. But what it did suggest was that from a, a, a readmission rate that there may be a, there may be an impact. So the, 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 the group that have developed this drug are going to continue um, looking at this within a phase three in a, in a, a sicker, maybe a, a population that's more at risk of severe disease. So the drug hasn't been, uh, certainly doesn't seem to have the same impact on early disease as, as the protease inhibitors, but it, there's still some unanswered questions about where it's best placed. And then we've talked about the novel vaccines, novel vaccines are addressing the emergence of variants, uh, waning antibody responses, and, and also this combination, this novel combination where uh, one uh, combined uh, injection with two vaccines is offering good immunogenicity against two infections at the one time. Thank you so much, Dr. Mallon, for that great presentation. It looks like we have a couple of questions that have come in from the audience in the chat. The first question comes from Susan. She is asking about, uh, is particularly in some of the treatment studies that you covered, was the vaccination status of the patients included in some of those recent studies, um, particularly for some of those with uh, underlying registries? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And from looking back through the data, the two studies that tended to have most uh, most data available on vaccinations with the two trials of the, the novel antivirals. Um, so the encetelravir and the bemnifosfavir. Um, and in both of those studies, the vast majority of people had received vaccination against COVID-19, which yeah, it, it's, it's that change in environment in terms of the 
the vast majority of people having received vaccination together with the change in the pathogenicity of the virus that's probably impacted on the ability of these studies to be able to demonstrate a treatment benefit, which I guess is one of the reasons why um, the phosphophere is, is moving on towards trying to address the point within more vulnerable populations. But the fact that encitrelivir is, is still, still able to demonstrate uh, a benefit in, in even mild disease in, in terms of the, the, the duration of symptoms, I, I think is, is an encouraging sign in that context. Great, thank you. And one question coming from Gary, he is asking about vaccination in older patients. Should they now get their second bivalent booster or wait until the fall for a possible updated vaccine? Yes, Gary, that's an excellent question. It's the $6 million question. Uh, the key is when should we, you know, what, what is the optimal timing of, of a booster vaccine? And it's one that we, we really we really don't have a clear answer for. Um, as you know, the, the 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 main reason for providing someone with a booster vaccination is to prevent them developing severe disease. And up until this point, uh, we tend to use natural history data for waning immunity to try and give an indication of 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 when a, 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 at a population level when people's antibody levels drop low enough that they may be at risk of severe disease. The key question here is how low does an antibody level need to drop? And, and that's what we just don't know. There's this concept of a threshold of immunity. And there's certainly a lot of data that's been generated in this. And certainly the data that our group has generated that has shown that when you look at the, the neutralizing capacity, that, that's the equivalent of a vaccination, that corresponds to a uh, uh, an RBD teeter, so an antibody teeter of somewhere between 500 and 1,000. Uh, but that hasn't been confirmed in prospective trials. And I think that's that that really is where the field needs to, to go, Gary. We need to figure out, is there a threshold antibody level below which vulnerable people are more at risk of severe disease? And if that's the case, when does it happen? And that's the time to booster vaccinate people. Whether that's the fall, or whether that happens midsummer, we just don't know because at the moment, uh, COVID still hasn't transitioned into a, a into a seasonal uh, respiratory virus. Um, so I guess it's watch this space. There's a lot of people still working on this, and, and hopefully we'll get some answers before the end of the year. And Dr. Mellon, there was one last question that came in from an audience member, Richard, on a similar vein. Um, how often should a patient who is greater than 65 and immunosuppressed due to medications be boosted against COVID-19? Similar answer? Similar answer. You know, Richard, the, the key here is that once we can, if we can identify and establish uh, a correlate of immunity, so if it is this RBD teeter of 500 to 1,000, then the answer is that if you're at risk, if you're immunosuppressed and your RBD drops below that level, that's when you need to be boosted. Um, and that's the data that we need, to, we need to generate. And probably the best way to generate that is either through ongoing uh, vaccine trials. I head up a trial called Boostervac in Europe that's specifically asking the question in the general population, what is the ideal time for a booster vaccine? Uh, we're coming up to uh, we're just about a third of the way through recruitment for that international trial. 
Um, but there are other studies that are ongoing that are looking at this in immunosuppressed uh, individuals. And the, 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 the other important consideration here, Richard, is that not everybody who receives a vaccine will mount an antibody response. So once we figure out what the threshold of, of immunity is or what the required antibody teeter is to keep you protected, uh, the key is we need to identify those people who are unable to achieve those antibody teeters through normal vaccinations. And, and that, that in itself will generate further research and further studies. Thank you very much to our faculty and thank you to our listeners for joining in. To learn more about our coverage of ECMID 2023, including slides and video, see link in the show notes. Please be sure to check back for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day. Bye.